Happy Monday, boys and girls. It is time for the Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Update, where we are bringing you commercial real estate news and trends from around the country, starting off here in Nashville. We're going to go a little bit faster than we typically do today. I am having a Father's Day dinner with my grandparents. Excited to go see my grandfather. So we're going to go ahead and dive on in to the Nashville market. So let's get Andy in here. The Four Seasons reveals $120 million jolt of condo sales for 40-story Sobro uh, skyscraper. Sorry, Sobro always trips me up because if you're from Nashville, you would never say that. I get why, I get why a news article would, though. Uh, this is from Business Journals. Um, pretty impressive. I mean, $120 million of condo sales, uh, is uh, that's a lot of sales. So... Developers of the Four Seasons Skyscraper in Sobro announced Thursday that they've secured another batch of condo sales contracts totaling $120 million. Uh, it's just another injection of wealth into downtown coming as the city climbs out of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, one thing to note there, man, if, you've got, if you have gone down to Broadway, it's like the pandemic never happened at all. Uh, it's, it's unbelievably packed. Uh, I would imagine that the capacity issues, I think there are still some capacity issues. That's what's driving everybody out into the streets. I mean, there are lines for every single bar down there. It's pretty wild. Uh, to date, they have $200 million of sales contracts in the fold, counting this round of deals, plus the first round that they announced in early 2020 that apparently drew buyers from Japan, the United Kingdom, Los Angeles, Austin, and Chicago. Look at that. Nashville is on the world watch now. Uh, and it has been for quite some time. I mean, hey, we got a direct flight to London, uh, what, last year or the year before? I mean, it's crazy. Little old Nashville. The Four Seasons declined to specify how many of the tower's 143 condos still remain available for purchase. Uh, let's see. Buyers had to put down a deposit equal to 20% of their purchase price to reserve their condo. So, I mean, that's a lot. I mean, look, if you're buying a, a $1 million condo, you have to put $200,000 down. Right. And a lot of these these condos are doing that here in Nashville, these high end luxury condos, because they're pre-sailing these units and they want to make sure that the buyers are legit. Uh, so that's pretty much why. Looks like a commodities trader from Memphis, Memphis signed a contract for a half floor penthouse listed for at least eight million dollars. That's crazy. Let's see here. Formal contract closings will begin in the second quarter of 2022 when the residents are set to move in. The tower is more than 540 feet. The Four Seasons Hotel has 236 rooms, uh, which is located in the lower third of the tower beneath floors of luxury condos. Um, pretty cool to see. Uh, it's a $400 million tower. So the fact that they are, I mean, look, they're probably going to be building uh, they'll sell the condos for probably around $400 million, give or take, and then they'll basically have a free hotel, which is a pretty great way to approach these kinds of projects. We're actually looking at doing that on a similar project. Not nearly of that scale, though. Moving on, uh, this is another article from the Business Journal. Nashville sets new record with more than $5 billion worth of building permits. Nashville is on pace, uh, is on pace to hit a record-breaking number of construction permits by the end of this month. Looks like permit values uh, for 2021 are on track to reach a record $5.3 billion by July 1. Uh, let's see, they've already issued more than $5 billion in permits so far, which is a 13.4% increase in last year's fiscal total. That's amazing. Uh, we're contending with rising construction costs due to labor shortages and building materials price hikes. Just like every other city in America, it's been uh, pretty amazing to watch. Honestly, how expensive uh, construction materials and labor have both been. Let's see, and we're still battling with uh, demand, right? I mean, we we have all these construction costs, but we're still trying to build. You got to keep building because there's still so much demand. People are still moving to the city, and they're willing to pay those prices. Last fiscal year's $4.41 billion construction value comprised 11,862 permits. Only about 27% uh, of those were for commercial. Uh, let's see. The category contributed $3.21 billion, or nearly 73% of the total dollar amount. So 27% a lot accounted for 73% of the total dollar amount. This next one is from the Nashville Post. Shout out to Chad Grout. Uh, really excited about this project. Fairgrounds, Treveca area site eyed for redevelopment. 
Urban Grout plans to reinvent Southside property offering Bow Trust Building. So a 13-acre property accommodating a truck terminal and service garage located near the Fairgrounds Nashville and Trevecca Nazarene University is being eyed for redevelopment. I actually live right down the street from this property. Chad Grout, principal of Brentwood-based Urban Grout Commercial Real Estate, will lead the effort to acquire the property and master plan its redevelopment. Let's see. Sits at 1116 Polk Avenue and has frontage along both Polk and Foster Aves. Uh, Grout is targeting a late summer acquisition and declined to note the price to be paid for the property. The site is relatively central to a light industrial area that some local real estate insiders have begun to refer to as the Docks District. Uh, perhaps a nod to its prolific number of truck terminals. Interesting. There we go, Andy. We've got a new neighborhood. Let's go look at the Docks District. Down by the Docks, Tyler? <laughs> down by the Docks. I can see the murals already. <laughs> Hashtag down by the Docks. Uh, the property includes both a 30,000-square-foot boat trust service garage structure fronting Foster Avenue and a cross-dock facility. Urban Grout will redevelop the portion of the site with the service garage, but plans to select one or more development partners for the remaining roughly 11 acres, depending on community response. Uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, McDaver Properties owns the property. They paid about $3.76 million for it in 2014. Uh, let's see. That building wants to become a retail and food amenity for this community, at least in part. And we've had several other interesting users approach us as well, said Chad Grout. Congrats, Chad. That's really exciting to see. All right, let's move on to Market Watch. This week, we are looking at a kind of a different city, I would say, right? Because almost everything that we have been tracking in our Market Watch has been in the southeast or even slightly Midwest, west, if you look at Denver. Uh, well, this week, we are going to be looking at Boston in the northeast, going in a very different direction from where we've typically been going because – Look, most of the markets in the Northeast are not on the Urban Land Institute's Emerging Trends watch list. They're just not. Um, okay, let's get into Boston. There you go. There's Boston. It's actually the most Northeastern city um, on this list. Uh, let's see here. In terms of overall real estate prospects, they are number nine, just behind Washington, D.C., and ahead of Long Island, Atlanta, and San Antonio, uh, which is pretty interesting considering those are all, I mean, Atlanta and San Antonio have been very strong. We've covered both of those markets um, on here before. They are number 29 on the home building prospects list, which look, I mean, that's a lot lower than most of the other cities that we've discussed so far, but that's still really high. I mean, think about that 29 in the entire country. There's a lot of cities in this country. Uh, they are part of – so we haven't covered any of these cities yet, so this is really interesting. They're part of a, the establishment, uh, which is a major group uh, per the Urban Land Institute, under multi-talented metro areas, uh, which uh, combines them with Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, uh, both Brooklyn and Manhattan, and Philadelphia. Cool. Local mar market prospects, investor demand is 4.04 out of 5, which puts them in number 5 in terms of investor demand in the country. So uh, clearly there is a reason that we're going to be talking about Boston today. This is an article from MillionAcres.com, 2021 Boston Real Estate Market Investing Forecast. Boston is the capital of Massachusetts and the largest city in New England, spending about 48 square miles. It's a big city. Uh, home to nearly 693,000 people. That is surprising to me because that is the size of Nashville. And also serves as a destination for more than 22 million tourists each year. The city was founded by the Puritans in 1630. I love that it throws that in there. Though the region itself dates back thousands of years to when Native Americans first lived there. Oh, let's see here. Boston is known for its eds and meds. The city has some of the best hospitals and healthcare facilities in the world, along with dozens of top-notch educational institutions. Their neighborhoods offer a rich mix of real estate opportunities, from stately brownstones in Beacon Hill to triple deckers in Dorchester. I feel like it'd be so funny to be able to like tell people like, "Yeah, I live in Dorchester." I don't know why that just seems so like fairy tale book to me. Posh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm from Dorchester. Um, also, I'm going to go ahead and apologize. If y'all can hear construction going on in our building, we just signed a lease for half a floor downstairs, and we are going through demo right now to build that out for them. So if you are hearing hammers, that is what's going on. 
Okay. State of the market. The housing is in short supply. Demand is high and inventory is low, just like just about every popular city in the country right now. When homes do come onto the market, bidding wars usually ensue for those who can afford to get into the fray. Of course they are. I mean, again, I, I feel like, uh, I mean, of course, every city that we're going to be covering on the Urban Land Institute's uh, market watch um, is going to be very popular. You know what we should do, Andy? We should start mixing it up and throw in some cities that you would want to avoid, right? Because now that I'm yeah. thinking about it, like every week we've covered something positive about some cities, there's got to be some very surprising cities where it's like, man, everything's just trending negatively. Um, so let's, let's, let's talk about that after this. Uh, the median price of houses is high. It is expensive to buy a house in Boston. Country's average median home price is $330,000. That's cheaper than Nashville. Um, oh, that's the country. I don't know why I was thinking that was in Boston. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's cheaper than Nashville. Uh, but in Boston, it's hovering at 557000 which is way more expensive than Nashville. It'll be hard for investors to find any bargains in such a hot real estate market, and homeowners lured by low interest rates might find their budget stretched to the max. I mean, you know, it sounds to me like it's probably a market to buy commercial real estate in, but probably not investing in single-family homes. Rental market is on the rebound. Uh, even with a drop in rent, Boston's median rent is much higher than that of the general market. Boston is a huge college town which meant there was a massive exodus of students during the pandemic. Yeah, that would hurt. I mean, that we saw that every year in Knoxville whenever kids went home for the summer, uh, and I was only there for two years, but it killed the strip. I mean, like that was when all the restaurants would like permanently close or bars would permanently close because there was no one there. Um, interesting. Okay, so let's look at their housing demand indicators. Unemployment trends. For the past several years, unemployment in Boston has been below the national average, which changed during 2020, uh, and it actually shifted higher. So it looks like they're currently at 6.8%, which is a 3.8% increase year over year, uh, but it's looking uh, like it might be getting a little more positive. We already talked about the median home price. Median rent price is $22.30 a month. That's pretty high, uh, which is, you know, $500 a month over the national average at $1,700, give or take. Um, rents have actually decreased 5.9% year over year. I'm sure, again, the pandemic. I mean, Boston, bigger cities like that are going to take a big hit um, from COVID. Total housing supply is 1.4 months. That's a very, very low supply. Um, you know, Nashville's sitting at what, like 0.7 months. Uh, it's that's just not a lot of product in the market, to be honest with you. Uh, but that's, I mean, it's a good thing, right? Like there's high demand, but that's really tough. If you're going to be trying to buy a home, you're going to be part of multiple bidding situations. Evan is jumping in. I flip houses and I've been having a hard time finding deals, even off market deals. I'm running into competition. I bet, man. I mean, it's look, it's, it's a crazy market out there right now. And uh, that's, you know, there's, there's many reasons that we avoid investing in single family homes. We will build them. We will build them and we will sell them. But, you know, one, it's just there's so much competition and you're competing against retail buyers, right? And retail buyers can always pay more than an investor can because they don't have to make a return. And they could say, well, it doesn't matter. I'll be here for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. I'll make my money eventually. I don't really care if I overpay today. Uh, and those are the kinds of buyers I do not want to compete against. Rental vacancy rate is at 5.5%, which is down 0.7% year over year. I mean, of course, it's COVID. I mean, 5.5% is not bad, though. Architectural billings, construction costs, construction jobs. Yeah, probably nothing Nothing else really worth talking about on this one. All right, this one is from the homebuyinginstitute.com. Outlook, Boston housing market will get even more expensive in 2021. It's always nice to see if you're, <laughs> yeah, slow clap for Boston. It's always great to see when, uh, <laughs> when you know, you're trying to buy a home and uh, you just know prices are going to keep rising. I've got buddies that are looking in Nashville and they're like, you know what, I'm going to wait until um, everything slows down a little bit and then I'll buy a house. And I just tell them, you you better, you might as well just go ahead and buy it today. It's not going to be going down anytime soon. I mean, look, Nashville is Atlanta in the 80s. Most of these cities are Atlanta in the 80s. Uh, I'm sure that there were people back then that thought, oh, you know, Atlanta will slow down, prices will decrease. I mean, look, nobody wants to be in a market where the real estate goes down in value. That's just not a good market to, to buy in, to be in. Home prices in the Boston metro area rose sharply during 2020. 
And let's see, a forecast for the Boston housing market predicted more of the same for 2021. It's just gotten a lot more expensive uh, due to low inventory and strong demand from buyers pushing prices north. I wonder where all these buyers are coming from. Let's see. The housing market rose in Boston, Cambridge, Newton 10% over the past year or so. That's, I mean, that's high. That's mo- I guess most of these cities are kind of seeing that over the last year. It was a 10% job, give or take. Mostly due to low inventory, like many real estate markets across the U.S., the Boston area is currently suffering from a chronically low supply. I mean, it's tough. You can't. You just can't build houses fast enough. That's one of the the. I mean, I guess it's a crutch in home building, right? Um, it also probably helps keep prices where they are. But uh, you know, I'm sure. I'm sure with all the alternative con- construction methods that we've been discussing uh, in recent episodes over the next few years, that may start to change. I mean, we say it every week, Tyler. I mean, there's 4 million homes short, single-family homes short. We build about 1 million single-family homes a year. So literally, we'd have to double the amount of houses we're building. And the thing is, we're slowing down. Labor is getting more expensive. Land is running out. Zoning regulations are becoming more difficult. We are not accelerating our pace of construction. It is not keeping up with even current demand. And we're like we're getting further in the hole every every single day so yeah exactly your friends who are like i want to wait for the market to correct it's like you let me know after we build after we build like five million additional homes then you let me know yeah exactly i mean it's going to be a while and the the other thing is too most metros are against density which is mind-boggling to me i mean that just shows you that most of the I don't know, politicians or, or council members or whomever just genuinely don't understand housing like and how cities are supposed to work. Let's see. Strong forecast for Boston housing market in 2021. Home values have gone up 4.8% over the past year, and Zillow predicts they will rise 9.6% in the last year or in the next year. Uh, let's see. This must be – yeah, I guess this is basing data off of Zillow, which Zillow is going to have totally different data. Um, just getting into numbers that are contradicting literally everything we just said. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm probably going to skip that. Um, let's see. I mean, that's the problem with Zillow, right? Like Zillow's, I don't know, they're, they have biased data, in my opinion. But maybe that's just me. Um, lots of buyers, few properties to go around. Like lots of cities in the U.S., Boston currently is still experiencing a shortage of homes for sale. Much of the same thing over and over again. Okay, so there you have it. I mean, Boston is a very attractive market. If you're looking for a stronger, more established metro, uh, that's probably the spot for you. Is this is this continuing on for Boston? Is this a fourth article for Boston, Andy? Looks like it. Let me make sure. Oh, I was muted. Sorry. Yes. Just get that okay. one. Just skip this one? Yeah. Okay, cool. We don't need it. All right. Well, we are going on to the future of commercial real estate then. Let's go ahead and dive on into that one. So this is from Globestreet.com. Backfilling empty apartments may be a problem when moratoriums expire. Landlords will move to evict non-paying residents once the moratoriums expire. I really appreciate that they they did the uh, sub-headline almost exactly the same verbiage as the headline. Anyway, basically what they're saying here is like, look, once the moratoriums expire on evictions, because right now landlords in most metros and most areas have not been able to evict non-paying renters. Uh, it sounds like once they get them out of the building, those vacancies may be there for a little bit. Even if it is extended past June 30th, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's eviction moratorium will eventually expire, and so will other state and local eviction moratoriums around the country. Let's see. Um, Landlords will start uh, proceeding uh, to enforce the default notices that they may have sent during the pandemic. While evictions were banned, default notices weren't. Uh, the the people to me that were like freeloading and just taking advantage of the situation, I feel like those are the people that are going to get hit or burn the worst out of all of this, because like there's no it's it goes on your record. I mean, it's they're going to call you know your next the next place you rent is going to call your previous landlord and ask about you, um, especially if they see that you were evicted. Um, so it, I don't know why you would want to go through that process just to save some money. But 
Once this burns off and landlords are able to then move forward as they had in the past, I think you will see increased evictions proceedings. To the extent possible, they'll, pot they'll potentially try and work things out with the tenants, but they have mortgages and they have taxes. Uh, I say this all the time. Look, it's not, it's not a charity, right? It's, it's just not. I mean, most landlords are willing to work where they can, uh, but the people that are getting eviction notices are not the people that are trying to work with landlords. Finding people to fill those apartments where residents were evicted may be easier said than done in some markets. New York has problems other than COVID problems based on the general state of the city. So I think that some of the apartments might stay vacant. It's absolutely true. I mean, we, I was looking at some articles. I think the, the data was from Realtor.com uh, a month or so ago, and they were saying that real estate was down 20% in Manhattan year over year. That's significant. Real estate is down 20%. You know how long it will take for them to gain 20% value back? It's crazy. Um, and it's because of multiple things, right? I mean, of course, COVID shut down the city and it was miserable. But, like, you know, I think people started actually exploring the possibility of living in other cities. And now they're educated on, oh, okay, well, actually, I can go live in a city like Nashville, not pay state income tax, work remotely, get – I mean – you know, I think that that really opened up the Pandora's box for people moving into other cities and exploring other options. Let's see. Higher-end units could be harder to fill, but the workforce or more affordable apartments should have plenty of demand. Um, I think that's true. I mean, we've found that in the commercial side of things as well. The more higher-end, expensive stuff can sometimes struggle, but you know we've got several office buildings where we're catering more to your Class C, Class B office tenants, your locals, mom and pop, small businesses, and they're staying close to 100% lease. It's pretty wild. Uh, let's see. With rents lower than before the pandemic in the city, Rosenberg thinks landlords will have an easier time filling apartments. I think there's an opportunity for some people who couldn't otherwise afford to live here to get an apartment. I think you'll have some vacancies, but I wouldn't expect that you're going to have Armageddon because of the CDC moratorium wearing off. If everybody's trying to be reasonable, I think that the best thing for both parties is to try and make a deal rather than to throw the tenant out. That's almost always the case. I mean, you lose like one or two months of rent, and it doesn't matter what kind of deal you struck before. It's going to be tough to make that ground back. The tenant that is paying something in hand, unless it's a completely unreasonable and unworkable amount, is better than no tenant. Exactly what I was just saying. So, yeah, I mean, you know, look, it's, New York's not going anywhere. It's still one of the most secure investments in the world, and it probably w it will be for a while. I mean, it's, it's New York City. It's still an international hub for business and, and trade and everything else. So, you know, New York will bounce back, but it's, it's going to be a little bit. This next one is from Globe Street. Institutional interest in these specialized assets is here to stay. Investors fled to alternative asset classes during the pandemic and won't be pulling out as it recedes. So what are alternative asset classes? Well, think of real estate. Real estate is an alternative asset class. Uh, cryptocurrency, that is an alternative asset class. So basically anything that is not a stock or a bond is what would be considered an alternative asset class. Let's see here. Uh, the flight of institutional investors to specialized assets during the peak of the COVID-19 pandemic uh, says the experts will push towards sectors like data centers, cold storage, life science, and medical office space, all of which are here to stay. Uh, industrial was apparently the front runner for investors throughout COVID. I mean, of course, I mean, industrial has been crushing it for years. And, you know, it did really well while people were stuck at home, logistics and distribution. <laughs> Uh, everybody was ordering things directly to their house. Cold storage posted record volume in 2020 with sales up 23%. I mean, cold storage, grocery delivery, pharmaceutical delivery, of course. As the food supply chain rapidly evolves and modernizes, investing in the last mile of food is the next frontier, with suppliers working to shift their current logistics and distribution networks closer to home. One of the driving forces is a surge in e-commerce volume, with groceries playing a prominent role. Uh, I mean, look, as, as we move more towards a delivery society, which I don't think is going anywhere, you're going to have increased demand for all of that type of product. 
Let's see. Despite the rise in telemedicine during the pandemic, medical office space remains a hot target for institutional investors, which accounted for about 35% of buyers in the early part of this year compared to 31% in 2020. I think um, actually on the YouTube channel this week, we're going to be dropping a video about investing in medical office buildings. So that will come out on Thursday. Keep an eye out for that. Medical office is great. I mean, look, telemedicine is wonderful, but I just I have a hard time seeing how doctors are really going to be able to, to test things remotely without people coming in to the stores uh, or to, I'm sorry, to the offices. Let's see. Are, are we going? Yeah, this is still future. Okay, cool. Uh, this next article is from BizNow. Signs of lumber bubble bursting um, offer relief to developers. A- Andy called me this week and was like, hey, you know, lumber futures are falling. We've all been hoping it would happen for quite some time, but it just it hasn't been. We were expecting it to do to fall this this fall, actually. Um, and uh, it's finally starting to look like that might be happening. Uh, lumber, which has ballooned to unprecedented levels in recent months, has started to drop from a record of seventeen hundred dollars per thousand board feet in early May. Lumber futures are now below one thousand dollars per board per one thousand board feet delivery in July. That is the lowest level for futures since March. That is very exciting to see. I mean, Andy, just uh, just riffing off of this one, do you think that that would change how we approach our 18-unit development? Not really, Tyler. I mean, look, average prices were like four or 500 per board feet before. It's like, oh, no, it is only two and a half times as much at 1,000 per foot versus <laughs> four to five times as much. It's still, it's, it's, it's like, it's, it's so much better. It is absolutely so much better. I think it's great for the whole marketplace that it is going to be cheaper because part of the reason why it was so high is because people were speculating, buying it up, literally just having it delivered to their wherever warehouses, wherever, and just to hold on to it. And then because that was happening, other home builders were buying way more than they need. They need. It was like the great toilet paper shortage, you know? <laughs> the great toilet paper toilet shortage. Paper. I hope that that gets exactly. its own like headline in some textbook someday. The great toilet paper shortage. I bet it does because you know it, it reveals the the flaws of the supply chain when you you expect everyone to buy normal amounts, then all of a sudden everyone panics and buys double the amount. Huh? Guess what happens? The price goes way up, and you can't find any toilet paper or wood. And hey, they're made of the same product, so there you go. Exactly. Exactly. Um, let's see. The spot price of lumber is also dropping according to pricing service, uh, random lengths. Uh, let's see. Framing composite index fell $122 to $1,324 as of Friday, the most it has ever fallen in one week. Pretty great to see the 2015 to 2019 average futures price for 1000 board feet was never more than $400. I mean, put that in perspective, like Andy was talking about, I mean, even though it has dropped, to below a thousand dollars, it is still more than twice what it ever has been. I mean, Andy, do you want to go ahead and touch on why that? I mean, I know that we've talked about that in, in, in recent episodes. It's probably not going to be on here, but for anybody listening that doesn't know what's going on, will you kind of fill them in? Yeah, essentially, on one of our projects, we're strongly considering some alternative construction methods, including SIPs or ICF panels that essentially just use a different way of either what SIPs are is you take plywood and then you put foam behind it. So your wall, instead of a bunch of little two by fours that you then nail plywood to, and then you fill, it's like a literally a, just a giant foam block with wood on the outside, right? And ICF is essentially, you have a bunch of Lego foam blocks and then you pour concrete in the middle and you make really, really strong houses that way. I mean, I'm here in Puerto Rico right now, all the houses, every single one is built with concrete, except for the, you know, the extremely poor houses are built with wood. And guess what? These things stand up to hurricanes literally all the time, right? So that that's the type of strength a concrete house can have. So the point is to say that we're very interested and in always trying to push for the future. And, you know, it, I don't think that it's not like wood is going to all of a sudden go back to... 400 bucks a foot where it has been for the last 10 years anytime soon it's not going to happen uh the the demand is still huge i'm glad we're not in gamestop mania territory for wood anymore but it's still extremely high demand and that's why 
you can look at alternative building products, have it be similar priced and, you know, probably have a better performing, stronger building than you would normally as well. Yep, exactly. So, uh, you know, obviously lumber was not the only product to go up uh, in expense. Also steel, plastics, gypsum, wallboard, insulation. I mean, cement's been going up for years. I mean, the price of cement is kind of ridiculous when you think about it. But yeah, I mean, it's it's remarkable. Some of those prices are going down. Looks like copper is also going down. Steel prices have fallen in China. They're continuing to rise in the U.S., um, which is interesting. It's probably I would imagine because of tariffs and, and just international trade. But, um, you know, that's uh, it's one thing to keep an eye on. I mean, steel has been a pain. We, we're doing a, a project right now where we're building out five kitchens and uh, for restaurants and we're providing the restaurant equipment. Well, guess what? Our, our bid went up like 50 percent, 30 to somewhere between 30 and 50 percent because uh, the steel, stainless steel. It just, it went up. So, you know, everybody's having to deal with pricing pinches right now. It's been really frustrating, uh, but it looks like the, uh, the end is near. All right, let's go ahead and move on to private equity deal dive. So this is another article from Globe Street. Kilroy enters Austin market with $580 million purchase, strikes other West Coast deals. I mean, yeah, that's a pretty casual entrance into the Austin market. Let's just go buy a half billion dollar portfolio. Uh, the firm has acquired Indeed Tower, a 730. Okay, maybe they didn't even buy a portfolio. Just one property. Cool. 730,000 square foot lead certified office property in Austin. LA-based Kilroy Realty has entered the Austin market with the acquisition of Indeed Tower for $580 million. It's a 36-story building and located in Austin's CBD, the Central Business District. Let's see. It's 57% leased. Wow. They bought it for- So, Matt- yeah, imagine how much it's going to be worth, Tyler, when it's like 80 or 90. Oh, my gosh. Well, it should be – I mean, based on that, it should be a bill, nearly billion-dollar tower. Um, wow. Indeed.com is the largest tenant in the, in the building, occupying 42% of the property. Okay, well, that might bring a little bit of risk, right? I mean, most lenders do not like to see – uh, any tenant occupying that much space in the building, but that's a great anchor, right? I mean, you get 42% of the building leased, and then you have all you know smaller tenants and the rest of it. You could probably drive your rental rates. Kilroy plans to drive value through the strategic lease-up of the property, and there is a lot to offer. The building has 30,000 square foot floor plates. That's actually that's a great floor plate. And offers tenants 10,000 square feet of ground floor food and beverage space and 30,000 square feet of outdoor deck space. Cool. Oh, let's see here. Those objectives, uh, it looks like the CEO of Kilroy is saying it falls within their strategic and property objectives, uh, which include properties and locations within a growing tech hub that includes major tenants like Facebook, Google, and Box. And I always forget Dropbox dropped the drop and became Box. <laughs> Say that five times fast. Uh, and the ability to drive value through a lease-up campaign. The acquisition is the first of what will likely be an ongoing expansion in Austin. I love Austin. It's Before the pandemic, I was going there typically anywhere from three to five times a year. If I had to leave Nashville, I would be in Austin. Um, I say it's it's Nashville with Texan flair, uh, which I'm sure there's a lot of people that wouldn't appreciate that I'm saying that. But, it, I mean, look, it's true. It's a really cool city. It's a blue dot in a red sea. It's very progressive, but it still has southern values. I don't know. It's cool. It's a great city. Food, the food is awesome, by the way. Uh, let's see. Um, city's vacancy rate grew 720 basis points during COVID. San Francisco and Seattle were the other two cities on the list, on the top of this list, according to Commercial Edge, with vacancy rates up 550 and 480 basis points, respectively. That is crazy. Interesting. So the office market in the city was, I mean, one of the worst impacted in the country. That's really that's actually really surprising considering some of the announcements that we saw from you know Oracle and Tesla and all these other big companies that were moving to Austin in the pandemic because it was better than California. Let's see. It just goes on to more about Kilroy's acquisitions. Pretty cool. All right, awesome. Uh, this one's also from Globe Street. Florida office portfolio trades for $58 million. The sale of the 259,000-square-foot Pinnacle Corporate Park represents the highest price-per-square-foot sale within the Cypress Creek submarket in the past decade. 
The JV partnership between Banyan Street Capital and Fund Managed DRA Advisors LLC has sold the two-building Class A office portfolio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Um, look, big on Florida. I like Florida. It's a it's a tax uh, state income tax free state, um, which is why a lot of people are flocking to that right now. Most investors are looking to be on the western coast of Florida because the east tends to get hit by hurricanes and with the frequency of hurricanes going up, uh, insurance rates are spiking. Uh, so it's, t- it's tough to get insurance in Florida. Let's see. Sales price represents $226 a foot, serves as the highest price per square foot sale in Broward County's Cypress Creek submarket in the past decade. It's pretty cool. The office properties are situated on 14.3 acres of land uh, in a master plan community called Uptown Urban Village. Buildings are currently 83% occupied. Buyers plan to invest more than $3 million in renovations and furnishings, which I'm sure will help them get the rest of that 17%, you know, minus consistent vacancies. Uh, Avis and Young sold it and goes further into how Avis and Young has uh, leased up the property over the years, retained tenancy during the pandemic. Um, pretty neat. All right, man. The most important paragraph, actually, with this article is just the last one, Tyler. Where that was the last one? The one that I was about to skip over and not read? <laughs> yeah, that was the really reason that it's in here, that it represents the trend of large funds and institutional owners to buy and sell large office assets as pandemic-driven concerns wane, essentially just to reflect. It's like people are throwing money at office again. So we, we've said it. We beat the dead horse about it. Office is going to change. There's going to be things that they have to adapt to provide better services to tenants, perhaps more flexibility, perhaps, but it is not dead. People are still throwing lots of money into office. Yeah. I mean, look, office is doing well. I mean, it's, it's funny. People just get so swept up and, and, uh, Oh, office is dead. Everybody's going to remote work. Well, it's not, if you look into it, right. I mean, people are working from home right now because they have to, as soon as they don't have to, a good majority of them are going to go back to the office. So you know, I mean, we're not worried about that at all. Kobe. All right, moving on. Now for PropTech. Let's see here. Weiss Analytics launches AVM powered by geospatial AI. Cape Analytics and Weiss Analytics say they've created a breakthrough technology for valuing home conditions. This is a really interesting space to me because anybody that cracks this code might have like a trillion dollar like venture on their hands. Um, it, it just it hasn't happened so far. It's very difficult to do. And like we were kind of saying earlier with you know Zillow not really having the best data. I mean most of these groups they're trying and they have great data compared to what they had last year or definitely great data compared to what they had five years ago. But it's still it's it's been tougher um, for this more. Uh, geospatial technology uh, to, to really take hold. Uh, let's see. Conan's actually asking a question about tax-free states. Let's talk about that real quick. Let's see. Is it considered a foreign LLC if you set one up in a state income-free state, state income tax-free state whilst doing business in a different state? Um, no, it's not technically considered a foreign LLC. Um, you can have an LLC that is uh, operating or, you know, let's say founded in Florida, but owns property in Tennessee, and you're going to be paying state income tax on your property in, well, there's no state income tax in Tennessee, but you would be paying taxes in Tennessee, right? So, I mean, I would, of course, consult a CPA, consult a tax professional. Um, Don't just take my word for it because (laughs) I'm a real estate guy. Um, And and, and consult your attorneys, but no, it's, you wouldn't be a foreign LLC, Andy, you have anything else you want to add to that? I will just say, if you are interested in not paying a lot of income tax and doing... Oh my gosh, are you going to plug Puerto Rico again? (laughs) I I would never do that. I'd just say stick around to the wild card segment because we'll be discussing something that I think would be very interesting to you. That's so funny. (laughs) All right, well, now I know exactly what the wild card is going to be. The funny thing is, I never know what the wild card is. I just let Andy kind of pick that and roll with it. Um, and it's, and it's always fun and entertaining from thousands of feet above your home. A high tech camera snaps pictures of the roof, the mess of the debris in your yard and that pool. You hate cleaning pictures like these could cost or save you thousands of dollars when deals are about to close. 
It could also have big implications for appraisers who are already nervous about the continued rise of automated valuation models, AVMs. Let's see. It looks like Cape Analytics and Weiss Analytics have created what they say is the first automated home valuation engine that uses geospatial imagery and artificial intelligence to integrate current home conditions like a damaged roof or a pool into valuations. Cape Analytics AI system instantly extracts property condition from images, which is then run through Weiss's valuation model. Um, they have conditioned data sets for 110 million buildings across the United States. Previously, an appraiser would need to make an in-person visit to note the condition of the property. Can we please figure this out immediately? Because appraisals take way too damn long, and they end up holding up the loan on a property, and that's always the like most stressful part of buying any real estate or refinancing any real estate is having to wait on the damn appraisal. But, I mean, and it takes right now sometimes two to three weeks, um, which to me is crazy, right? Because you know, Andy and I sit down, and we can come up with brokers' opinions of values in, like, a couple hours. Of course, it's, we're not appraisers. I'll go ahead and say that. We don't have the accreditation. But still, we can get pretty damn close. And we'll often pull the same comps. So, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's me just getting on my soapbox and being frustrated. But hey, it's my show. I can, do, I can talk about what I want. One of the key missing ingredients, which is which this now answers, is how do you know what condition the house is in? Um, that's a great question. Because most of the data is very out of date that you can get in computerized form. Uh, you can get assessor data, uh, which could be a year or more out of date, and does not tend to focus on the condition of the house. We use CRS data for that type of stuff, and it's amazing, by the way. Um, highly recommended. Cape Analytics and Weiss Analytics are primarily targeting real estate investors, real estate brokers, and mortgage originators with the Valpro Plus tool to help them identify undervalued purchase opportunities. The two companies claim their Valpro Plus engine has shown a 7.7% improvement in the PPE 10 predictions of on-market valuations. The model can also flag homes in distressed condition and will accurately predict they will sell at 10% off-market discount. The company said, okay, well, that's where all the money is. I mean, they're going to start selling. They're basically get, they could become wholesalers. They go out, they find all the, hey, here's all of the distressed homes in your area. Uh, start sending them mailers. So, in the future, if you want to stop getting those annoying uh, letters sent to your house asking if you want to sell, just make sure your house is in good, good condition. Um, let's see. They are not. They are especially interested in hooking loan traders, refinance, and HELOC loan originators and I buyers who often want to bid on a home that isn't on the market and doesn't have an asking price. Exactly what I was just saying. That's wholesaling. Overall, off-market houses sell for about 2.5% below their on-market peers. Uh, but Cape and Y say investors using, using their product achieved a median discount of 10%. That's, that's actually pretty significant. Uh, Weiss wasn't shy in saying the product represents a direct threat to appraisers and broker price opinions, BPOs, whom he says are both slow and expensive. Uh, broker opinions of value are not necessarily expensive, and they're not necessarily slow, but they're not the best. Like It's not like the it's not the best thing that you would want. But I mean, if you're going to take it to market, you're going to get a broker's opinion, and you're going to list it at that price. So it's like, really? Is it really not that? Uh, I don't know authoritative? I think so. There's been a decades-long process by which the traditional appraisal has been, in some cases, augmented, in many cases, replaced by technology. And that's been something that's been going on since at least around the mid-1990s because of the cost of appraisals and because of the delay that appraisals create. They create such a delay. It is so frustrating. In various transactions, they're not practical for all the ways that investors, lenders, and homeowners require in order to go about transacting the way they want to. Yeah, pretty crazy. Uh, this, it looks like this model allows investors to get lists of all the houses discounted below market value due to condition factors. So you can stop wasting money on all the nicer houses that will never sell to you because you're a wholesaler and you can focus on only distressed properties. Pretty cool. We now know if we have a house in South Florida that has a pool and would other, otherwise be worth $600,000 versus a house that doesn't have a pool, what that means in terms of the value of the house, 
We didn't know things like that before. We didn't know what it meant if there was a lot of yard debris or there was a lot of vegetation overgrowth or what it meant if the condition of the roof was very good versus very bad in a given market. Pretty cool to see that uh, really starting to pop off. Um, again, ama- that's why we always talk about this. It's one of my favorite categories, prop tech is. It's, it's, it's amazing what is going on in the world of technology and commercial real estate. Moving on to reading REITs. Let's see. We are talking about office REITs again. As Andy was saying, office REITs are doing well. Well, let's dive into the real estate investment trust. This is basically real-time office data uh, to show you how the office market is doing because you know REITs, again, are traded like stocks and bonds um, on the market. So let's see what it looks like. Vaccines are here, masks are off, and sports stadiums are full. Office desks around the country remain eerily empty, however, as office utilization rates remain a fraction of pre-COVID levels. For many corporations, there's no going back, at least not to pre-COVID norms. Survey data revealed that office workers would accept pay cuts before returning to the five-day in-person work week. What? While the office isn't going away entirely, hybrid work environments, which require less office space, are increasingly standard. Office market rents have plunged 10 to 20% as vacancy rates soar. I think that's interesting. I've, I've been saying that office is not dead, but it certainly will change. I mean, there's no way that office space will go back to being exactly what it was, or at least 100% across the board what it was before the pandemic, because now we have so much supplemental technology that we can utilize. And we've also realized, okay, maybe you don't have to be in the office 100% of the time. But I think three, four days a week does make sense to be in the office. Maybe you can work home from home one day. Um, and it, of course, it depends on your industry and your job position too. The permanence of WFH trends, and which is work from home, and the ultimate recovery in office demand will be uneven across regions. Commute times and the cost of living factors are playing a major role in determining which markets recover faster. Earnings reports confirm that leasing demand remains depressed with no clear inflection yet particularly in the dense, transit-heavy office markets like New York and San Francisco, which are expected to struggle in the new normal. Again, one thing that I want to point out, they are talking about these highly dense metros that are struggling with office space. Nashville just had Oracle announce an 8,500-job campus downtown in the last month. So it, it is, this is very location-dependent. All right, diving into um, these charts. This is the, this is surprising to me. Employees will take pay cuts to keep work from home. Yes, sixty three percent said yes they would take a pay cut to work from home two to three days a week. That's really surprising to me. But I guess it's because we're not. I mean, Nashville's not a, a metro where you where you have to commute for you know an hour and a half both ways, right? I mean, we don't have shorter commute times. But I mean, look, it takes me five minutes to get to, maybe maybe ten minutes on a rough day to get to the office. And that's how it is for most people. I mean, Andy lives way out in the absolute middle of nowhere, so it takes him a little bit longer. But I mean, it's, it would be time. about the same to commute to 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 Nashville from Puerto Rico as where I live right now. So <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit further. Um, let's see. Back to work barometer. Office re leasing spreads. Wow, they have the. Lowest average leasing spread since 2010 in Q1 2021 as rents have declined 10 to 20%. Another thing to keep in mind, right? Most real estate investment trusts, what kind of office assets are they buying? They will typically be class B plus, class A, which are which is what has gotten hit so hard in the pandemic. So that's one thing to keep in mind. All right, now let's look at this. Road trip average commute times by city. New York City, 72.6 minutes. Washington, D.C., 69 minutes. San Francisco, 65 minutes. I mean, that's just, that's absolutely ridiculous. Um, Where's Nashville on this list? I bet it's going to be so low on here. It doesn't even matter. You see it, Andy? Do you see Nashville on here anywhere? I saw Knoxville. Why do I see Knoxville but not Nashville? Yeah, I'm seeing Memphis. Oh, here it is. Nashville, 54 minutes. That sounds really high, but there's, I mean, it's okay. It's probably because Nashville is, uh, it incorporated the the entire county. I bet that's what it is. I definitely commute. I commute an hour and a half, Tyler. Round trip. That is your (laughs) fault. I commute not even 10 minutes, so 
Yeah, I mean, that's I would I would say that the longer your commute time is, the more uh, likely you are to work uh, work from home because you don't even want to deal with traffic. Let's see, office rates are still doing well. I mean, look at their year to date performance; they're up twenty five point seven percent. I mean, they're barely behind single family rentals. Um, they are ahead of industrial, casino, and gaming, cell towers, net leases. Uh, I would say that they're probably, I mean, they're still above average in terms of real estate investment trust if you're going to be investing in anything. I mean, it's at 25.7% growth year over, uh, year to date. Um, you know, look, number one is regional malls, which is 61.1%. Everybody's been talking about how regional malls have been dying for a while. Well, they just, they end up getting reinvented, so... Well, this this reflects too, Tyler, how far they fell. So they came back more, and it's just a higher percentage as a function of coming back, as well. So that's just one thing to think about for those numbers. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Shopping malls got crushed. I mean, okay. Honestly, the biggest thing to look, we can just go down to the uh, yeah. This I like this one, and then the last two charts. Okay. So office REIT, same store NOI growth, uh, limited near-term hit to cash flows, but long-term outlooks uh, looks less promising. So, I mean, you can see right here on this chart, I mean, office just got absolutely nailed in 2020. REITs were down 3%. Well, that's they're down 3% now. They were down. Their NOI, their NOI was down 3 yeah. to 5%. So, I mean, they're they're bouncing. They're they're predicting it to bounce back up. I mean, guidance is saying a positive future. It'll come back. Um, let's see. Vic is asking a question. Hi, I tried to I tried to reach I tried to sign up for the link for underwriting examples. Can you confirm the link or how to get in touch with the investor side? Uh, Vic, are you asking um, to get on our investor list for our investment projects, like when we're raising capital and doing deals? Or are you looking for uh, the underwriting, like spreadsheets and underwriting videos? Um, I have a, there's a link in the YouTube description um, that should say investors or something along that line, newsletters maybe, um, and it'll, it'll bring you to an investor's list. Um, you can click on that and that's how you can sign up to get on our list. Now, what I would do if you're interested in investing in our deals is, is to uh, schedule a time to speak with me because we do all friends and family raises. I have to have a pre-existing relationship with everyone. Um, so that is on my website. If you want to jump on that newsletter, um, it's, it's called a newsletter, but it's our investor list. So we send out all of our investment projects to that. It's just tylercobble.com slash newsletters. Um, it should be in the YouTube description. Let me check and make sure that that's actually working. Because if it's not, we need to get that fixed. It's going to get a little meta because it's going to show us live right now. But the link was invalid because of Twitter. Let's see. Listen to the podcast on the go. Okay, we go down here to newsletters. Yeah, so that's working. So you would just click newsletters and you would go to the investor list right here. Hope that helps. Let me know if that doesn't. I'll look into it again. Um, we'll, we'll get that figured out. Um, okay, let's see. And then we'll go down to the last two. Those last two are always pretty cool. Where to be bearish and where to be bullish. Where are those, Andy? I thought those were on the bottom. Oh, I thought they may have took them out this time. I guess they did. They usually have uh, Hoya. So Seeking Alpha typically has a, uh, you know, why we're bearish and why we're bullish on office. And I guess they didn't do that for this one. Um, yeah. Awesome. Vic is saying he's signing up. They're, they're signing up now. Vic, yeah, like I said, feel free to reach out. Let's let's grab a call. Let's talk about, uh, you know, your your investment uh, criteria, what you're interested in and what you've what you've bought before. would love to hear about that. Uh now, this is one thing to note, too. U.S. office space per employee has been going down for years. Um, and, well, it was going up before 2008, right? 2010, it peaked, and it's been going down ever since. Everybody's been doing these open office plan, you know, whatever. Um, and I think open floor office plans were cool for a little bit until people realized, like, oh, yeah, it might actually kill productivity. 
but we're still moving towards smaller and smaller office space. I think the new trend is going to be you're going to have part of your workforce working from home during the beginning of the day or during the second part of the day, or you'll alternate days or something like that. So you'll have people with shared workspaces. So that will actually contribute to smaller office space per employee, even though technically you will not have every single employee in the office every day. I mean, we have an area, I have a bullpen in my office where it's kind of open desks, right? I mean, there are some assigned desks. Well, not really assigned, but like, you know, brokers or whoever chose them. Um, But uh, for the most part, I mean, that's kind of how we operate. I mean, Andy, Andy's going to start coming to the office um, almost every day once he moves into into Madison, which is only a few minutes away. Um, But, you know, he's been coming in, you know, once or twice a week, right? And like actually working out of the office. And that's that's kind of how I see a lot of office space moving forward, you know? So, all right, well, there we go. There we have it for uh, all of my stuff. Now for Andy's wild card. Andy, what is the wild card this week? Tyler, thank you so much for letting me host this wild card segment and letting me choose whatever topic I get to choose. Thank you guys for sticking That's around dangerous. as well. <laughs> it is dangerous, Tyler. Thank you guys so much for sticking around to the end of the CREI weekly show where we're talking about the latest in real estate investment news. At the end of each episode, I always pick a topic about real estate investing that I think might be cool that you guys can learn for yourselves. It's a little bit different off the beaten path. Today, I'm going to be speaking about where I am today. Q in the Heights. Q West Side Story. It's Puerto Rico. Why Puerto Rico? So I went on a real estate investor tour. So this Yesterday, this this wildcard today actually is going to serve uh, two reasons, both to show you guys about really cool tax structures here and then also convince Tyler why uh, we need to be investing uh, down here on the island. So in case you guys didn't know, and I got this uh, PDF, by the way, from this man I made, Nathan, uh, yesterday, Puerto Rico is an island off of Florida, about a thousand miles southeast. 100 miles long, 35 miles wide. So uh, you can see it right here. It's not the biggest, you know? I mean, look at that comparison compared to like Florida. It's about as wide as the the panhandle. Uh, not sorry, the panhandle, just like the uh, whatever this is called uh, of Florida. So it is, it's not super big, but they have about 3 million people who live there. And what really cool is they have the only U.S. tropical rainforest, they have a desert, and they have three of the five world's freshwater bioluminescent bays. And I have swam in, or I have been to two of them. So kind of, I'm kind of a big deal and very important. So what's cool about Puerto Rico is that it is the United States. It is America. It is an American territory, which means they have American laws. They have American investment structure, American banks finance Puerto Rico. They have the, you use the American dollar. Puerto Ricans have U.S. passports and they have U.S. military and you can go to Puerto Rico without a passport. So in terms of tourism and making it easier for you to go down to somewhere in Latin America, the Caribbean, this is the easiest place to go because it is literally still technically America, right? And it's a fairly big economy and population. I don't want to bore you guys with all of this stuff here, but well, like comparing it to uh, Hawaii, for example, uh, it has a bigger GDP than Hawaii with more population, right? But uh, it's, believe it or not, Puerto Rico's biggest industry is manufacturing, which is actually healthcare manufacturing, not tourism, something I had no idea about where they actually have, let's see if it's on here. It was, it's, it's on here somewhere, but the, uh, they actually had some of the, every single big biotech company, Pfizer, Merck, Eli Lilly, uh, they, I think, uh, Johnson and Johnson, every single one that you've heard about that has done anything for the COVID shot has a manufacturing facility in Puerto Rico. And why is that? It is because of this. And this is where we were talking about look, listening to something about cool tax incentives because I learned about this yesterday and then my mind was completely blown. There are no federal taxes, so they get to set their own tax rate. So here's something really cool. 
if you're an Act 20 corporation, so if you do a company here, uh, guess what your uh, income tax is on that corporation? 4%. You know what the United States corporate income tax is? is 21%. So uh, that's pretty good <laughs> to cut your, cut your income tax from 21% to 4%. And what is this export service business? If you are operating literally just where you're just doing any sort of consulting client-based business, they don't want you actually to be competing with local people. Export services means you have to provide services to entities not in Puerto Rico. So very theoretically, if you're a white collar job employer in the United States, let's say you're some sort of tax professional, white collar professional, and then you just do consulting services for people, you could incorporate in Puerto Rico and cut your income taxes from 21% to 4%, just like that. And that's why all those companies uh, are, are down here, as well as if you qualify for personal uh, residency, you will never pay any tax on capital gains, dis dividends, distributions uh, ever again. The capital gains tax is zero if you are a resident of Puerto Rico. So I just thought hey, that Andy. that was a... Yes. Uh, real quick, Conan is asking um, if you can send that PDF. Um, sure. So, yeah, we'll, we'll figure out how to do that. Um, if you want to drop, well, I was going to say, if, you, if you're comfortable dropping your email in the live chat, uh, yeah. we're happy to do that. Um, also, you could also just follow me or find me on Instagram and send me a direct message and we'll get it over to you. Uh, Conan, you're also asking who, who our CPA is. I, I use a local group because your CPA is so it's so important to have somebody that's local in your market because tax rules vary depending on you know city to city, state to state. Um, so I, I would highly recommend just finding somebody that focuses on real estate within your market. Sorry, Andy, go ahead. No, totally fine, Tyler. And this is where we wanted to, <laughs> while we wanted to bring it up because you start hearing about this and you're like, huh, maybe this is something I should think about because you can save a lot of money that way. Uh, so this is why a lot of corporations have been moving here. Puerto Rico is the only place in the world that U.S. citizens can live and pay extremely low taxes. And you're still part of the, you know, the United States and get all the benefits of being part of America. Right. So that's pretty cool. And the other thing is, too, with all of this, this is causing this Act 22 is causing a lot of cryptocurrency investors to come out here. So if you're big into crypto, apparently this is like crypto central outside of China, which is the number one. Apparently, like Puerto Rico is like number two or number three because of the capital gain stuff. Uh, it is also for real estate investors. Ninety eight percent of the island is in an opportunity zone which is allows you to invest and not have to pay capital gains tax if you're moving investments into an opportunity zone, as long as you hold it there for 10 years. The other thing, oh, here's the thing. Fifth largest pharma producer in the world, which was pretty cool, 50% of their economy being manufacturing. I had no idea. Uh, I wanted to briefly touch on this. This is something really cool. For tourism, you would think, because that's all I know, that's all most people know about Puerto Rico, that they have tourism. Average GDP of tourism from Caribbean islands is 15%, Bahamas is 60%, Puerto Rico is only 7%. So they offer very generous tax credits if you build hotels here. Because we only have 14,000 hotel rooms and they want to double that over the next 10 years. So what kind of tax credit do they give? They give either a 40% tax credit or 30% tax credit, and that is of your entire project cost. Let me say that again. For those of you who don't understand what that means, that means if you build a $100 million building, they will give you $40 million in tax credits. So uh, let that sink in of how cool that is to be doing projects in Puerto Rico where and this is the one that's most common this 30 percent tax credit and i want to explain to you guys what this means one third of this tax credit gets awarded to you on construction finance so what this effectively ends up being so let's say on a typical development deal you're building a hotel you get a 70 percent loan so that means you have to bring 30 percent equity to the table guess what they give you 
one third of the total project cost, one third of this 30% tax credit. So 10% of the total project cost uh, once you get your construction financing. So what does that mean? That means Puerto Rico will give you 10% of the entire capital stack up front or one third of your entire equity if you get a 70% loan up front just by starting the project. So I just wanted to throw that out there for those of you who are interested in real estate or tax, cool tax incentives. This is just something I haven't seen, Tyler, and this is really all I wanted to cover on this. This is something I haven't seen really for any place, any state in America to have such generous tax incentives like this. And again, it's because what they said, because technically it's a territory right now, they can set their own tax laws so they can do crazy stuff like this and make it really favorable for both personally investing, business investing and real estate investing. I was almost muted there. Andy, thank you so much, man. That was awesome. Puerto Rico sounds really cool. I'm excited to talk about these projects that you found us. Uh, guys, we may be doing some projects in Puerto Rico, so uh, you might have to find a reason to fly down uh, and check out a project uh, next time we're going through a capital raise. Um, Conan, we will get that deck uh, emailed over to you. I will get Andy your email address. Uh, thank you all again for joining us live. If you are on YouTube, don't forget to like and subscribe so you get notified every time we go live. We do the Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Update every Monday at 5.30 p.m. Central Standard, usually. Today we went early just because I, again, I'm going to have uh, dinner with my grandfather for Father's Day. Really excited about that. Um, if you're on the podcast, don't forget to rate and review so that everybody else realizes or hears about how much you love the podcast. We'll see you guys next week.